Here's something I want you to turn over in your mind. Good decisions in our school systems that lead to successful outcomes for students are really, in part, contingent on the way in which people make those decisions. Agree? Disagree? Want to learn more? Welcome back to Budgeting for Educational Equity, the series presented by Casbo and Westhead. I'm Jason Willis, your host. Education leaders, school business officials, and school communities continue to confront a full plate of difficult and time-sensitive decisions. In this episode, we're gonna do some thinking about thinking. What are some ways we can reflect on and improve our processes and approaches to decision-making to more effectively allocate resources and better meet the needs of students? As part of this, we'll look through the frame of what's known as System 1 and System 2 thinking, and how you can begin to apply some of what the research tells us to strengthen the systems you use to make decisions, both individually and organizationally. To shed some light on this, we brought in a colleague of mine at WestEd, Alex Jacobson. Alex's research includes extensive work in school finance, as well as examining effective decision-making in school systems. So Alex, thanks for, thanks for joining us today. Um, let's just start with a little bit about yourself, uh, your role, organization, kind of what you, what you do on a day-to-day basis. Sure. I'm a senior research associate at WestEd, and my work is really focused on uh, education finance policy and doing uh, quantitative research mostly, but in some cases, more qualitative analysis of uh, finance policy in education at a systems level, so usually at the state level, but sometimes in large school district systems. Uh, and that includes um, considering questions like, what is the level of resources required to reach some outcome standard, and so termed often adequacy, also thinking about fiscal equity, and whether the resources provided for a given district or school is aligned with the resource needs of the students in that school um, and in that district, and how well the system is set up to uh, make those kinds of allocations effectively and equitably. Yeah, and Alex, as you know, I mean, you and I have worked for several years together at WestEd on on several of those projects together. And, you know, one project that kind of distinctly comes to mind and thinking particularly around, you know, our audience for this podcast and what we're aiming to do was the work that we did in Kansas. And while there was quite, there were questions there about the level of resources and how the resources were distributed. Um, one of the things that I really appreciated about some of the writing you did for the report was particularly geared around effective decision making. So in that way, the the good use of resources, as you were positing in that piece, was really in part contingent on the way in which leaders were making decisions. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, that segment of that report. Sure, sure. So I guess I'll frame up the, the main points and then dig into any that you want to talk about a little bit more. But I think the first key insight that we discussed in that section of the Kansas report was that psychological research and research into organizational behavior suggests that decision-making and rational decisions and thoughtful decision-making, that it's not an ingrained quality like intelligence and that it's difficult to use information like uh, someone's intelligence or background to select individuals who will make effective decisions. It's a skill. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think that that's a 
key insight into how an organization goes about seeking individuals who are uh, positioned well to make effective decisions. Uh, it's difficult to select them based on their background. It's uh, more something that might be developed as part of their role. So the idea that it's a skill, not an ingrained quality that can be associated with things like intelligence is a key insight. Another is that decision-making may benefit from some general types of strategies that are, again, part of sort of the psychological research and organizational um, research. There are, there are a few key themes that come out of that work. And one of them is that decision-making may benefit from an opportunity to access a range of outside perspectives not readily available to leaders. So by that, I mean mm -hmm. thinking about how someone outside of your context would think about a prevailing decision you know, that you might make. You may have had a deliberation, gone through your normal process, and come to a decision, but that was done in, in your own context. And so a strategy is thinking about how someone outside of your context would think about the decision. Another that's very connected to that is considering the opposite. So include in your process what the evidence and support would be for doing something that is opposite to what you are inclined to do in terms of a decision you're facing. And again, both of those really relate to thinking about outside perspectives that may not be in the room, may not be part of the process normally as a tactic. Another theme that comes out of that that we talked about is this idea of routines and process as being important to effective decisions. And this can be as technical as having you know, a process by which you score various considerations in a decision uh, independently, and then consider how well a particular decision does on all those considerations, and the, you know, compare that against how other possible decisions do, and use that as a way of understanding which decision is kind of the best uh, available. It doesn't have to be that quantitative and kind of technical. Um, I think yeah. that represents maybe a more uh, a framing for how you think about making decisions where you, you really can just set up a structure and a process and a routine around how decisions are made that builds into it an opportunity for some of the tactics like considering outside perspectives, but also some thought about uh, independence, objectivity in all the considerations so that you're not relying on your gut. Every time you make a decision, you have a process that sits outside of your own sort of uh, maybe your own bias, your own tendencies when it comes to making decisions that can be a, a complement to the expertise and kind of the, the what you bring as a, a person with experience as a leader and what you know about what a good decision looks like. And, and then can help kind of get outside of some of the, the challenges that come along with making some automatic decisions, some bias or some sort of um, positivity bias is a term that's used, or you, you might be predisposed to think something is going to work because it makes sense to you. Um, and you may overestimate how successful a decision that, that feels right uh, will actually be. And this kind of feeds into the system one and system two concepts around decision-making that I'm sure many listeners may be aware of, but Alex, could you take us through a little bit more and how it ties in here? Sure. I think at this point, system one thinking and system two thinking are pretty commonly understood or, or in one way or another, people have that framing in mind when they think about how people make decisions or how people go through a thought process. But just to give a little bit of an overview, what I mean here is this idea that system one 
thinking is automatic, it's fast, it is you know, lower effort, and it relies on a short cognitive shortcuts to make a decision quickly. But it also you know, often is fed through the same sort of context and process that most decisions you make are made, are, are fed through. And so there's a, a sense of uh, confirmation bias or that you, you kind of bring to that what you already have available to you in terms of you know, what you consider when you make a decision and you do it very quickly. And sometimes that's necessary and it's the most effective approach. System two is a slower, more deliberate and effortful kind of process. And, and I'm really oversimplifying these. These are uh, part of a, a body of psychological research that is really outside of my field. And so I'm, I'm really bringing a very cursory uh, explanation of these. But this, this was originally coined uh, in Stanovich and West in 2000, I believe. And I think it's now just taken on a life of its own in how people think about how people make decisions and how they go through a thought process. So I'm going to go ahead and put the framing into our current conversation and say, you know, Great. oftentimes yeah. leaders are put in a position where they have to rely on system one thinking and may not have an opportunity to really leverage system two thinking, uh, especially maybe now when we're facing ongoing crises that require constant difficult decisions to be made. So I don't want to overstate how, um, how much you can use that framing. I really do think it for this context, it really is like a, a way to start, a way into thinking about some of these things I mentioned. For example, you may only have the opportunity to make a, a decision based on system one thinking. But you know, before the decision comes to you, before the pressure is on to make it, having a routine in place that you can feed your decision-making process through that adds in opportunities for some of these tactics to be used, but in an efficient and automatic kind of way. Um, an example of this may be that as a part of your process, you, you have to include a set of alternative options that go beyond kind of just uh, the status quo option or one alternative to the status quo. And this has been shown in some research, to, or some research evidence that this actually does really improve decision-making when there are multiple alternative options alongside the status quo uh, in a decision-making process. But that can be difficult to integrate when you have to make a decision quickly. So if you build a routine where you become sort of more adept at including multiple alternative options, including you know, uh, these ideas of outside perspective, of regularly asking the question, if I were not in this organization, if I weren't in my district, if I weren't in my school, how would this look to me? You know, what, on what basis would I judge this decision? And um, if I made the opposite decision, can we see how that might be successful? Well, why might it not be successful? Even just going through that exercise briefly might illuminate some uh, opportunities to improve the final decision that's made. Uh, that, that don't come about when someone has to really quickly decide based on their own and what they already have uh, in terms of tools available to them. Yeah, th thanks, Alex, so much for that. It's so great to have you kind of lay out these components and in particular, the broader frame around how leaders think about or how leaders may be operating in one kind of gear or another is maybe the analogy I'll use, the system one versus system two thinking. So I, I want to run this through a bit of a filter. So in our previous episode, we were talking with the superintendent and CBO from Napa Valley Unified. And what was so interesting about their commentary is that they were distinguishing themselves as saying, 
you know, we've been working on building some of these systems internally. We've been writing out our strategic plan, starting to put plans in place about how we're going to execute and implement that in the system. And their perspective was they actually felt they could accelerate during the pandemic with the implementation of some of these strategies. And I think for a lot of listeners, that could be really counterintuitive for what they've been experiencing right now because it feels super chaotic over the last 24 months or so. But as you think about that, about what the Napa Valley leaders put forward, how would you square that with what you're laying out for us? I mean, is this focus on systems and process even feasible or possible when things feel so chaotic? So I want to make sure I'm understanding the question, but uh, the comment was by putting plans in place, we're actually able to make decisions more quickly and be more nimble in how we go about making decisions, even though there's, there's like a real time constraint. And is that. Yeah. Not just the plans, but also the routines, the processes, the structures to make that decision-making. Yeah. I mean, I I think that that, that is exactly in line with what I know of the, the literature on routines and process, when it's done effectively, I think it really can speed up decision-making. Uh, and, mm. you know, again, that might be counterintuitive, as you pointed out, but I think the reason why that's the case may be that as a leader is given a set of tools, a process on which they can rely, um, a framework for how they make a decision, they don't have to generate all of that themselves. And that takes away the burden on the decision maker, the leader, to have to go through that process Mm. (laughs) every time a decision gets made. So if it's done well, again, if the process is a good one, if it's including tactics that support effective decision-making, if it's leveraging information data, I haven't haven't really talked about using the information and including updates and and really drawing on data to make your decisions. But if if it's based on available information, uh, a robust set of available information, you know, well set up routines can really take the burden off of leaders to have to both make a decision and generate the process through which they make that decision. And I think that might be, uh, you know, one reason why you see um, this kind of process build, you know, being built into a decision-making process by, by building routine and might help make those decisions more quickly. Alex, you mentioned what you called, quote, the burden that sits with decision makers and especially education leaders who impact the lives of so many children and families. And I'm just curious to hear more reflections you might have on that. Yeah, I think we ask a lot of our leaders um, without the support to help them uh, scaffold into their own process, their own best process for making decisions. And there's lots of potential you know, ways to support leaders to, to get to that and develop as leaders. I think there's a lot out there in education for leadership development. It's, it's not an area that I would call myself an expert in. But I think what, what my reflection is on that comment is that if there's a way for leaders to be given tools, given information, and given process they can rely on to then use their own skill, their own knowledge and expertise, uh, and engage with the process in that way, I think it, it's to the benefit of the decision ultimately. Now, I'll give an example of you know, kind of how this might play out. If a, if a leader is asked to make mm-hmm. a particular decision about um, staffing 
and they're, you know, they have a sense of what the needs are. Um, they have an opportunity or, you know, a need to fill a vacancy. They have a sense of what the need is for the position and they have some limits on, you know, how much they're able to invest in the position, you know, and, and kind of a limits on who's available, who's in the pool to be hired. Absent a process by which people are hired, absent a set of steps that are consistent across hiring processes in the district, absent a set of guidance and tools about who, you know, where to go to look for your possible applicants, how to sort of get the best, broadest base of uh, information about what the needs are for the position. Absent all of that kind of um, surrounding the leader, they have to generate all of that themselves so that they can bring their own expertise, their knowledge of what they need and what will work best and the best fit of their, in their school or district, uh, you know, in addition to, to making the final call. Uh, so they have to generate all of that themselves. And I think in some cases that can also have problematic implications for how some decisions look at a systems level. If we're all relying on our own uh, lens for what decisions we make, and there's no thoughtful, intentional process to help deal with bias, deal with limitations in our, our own viewpoint about what good fit means, about you know, who kind of is, is the right person for a job or for, um, for a culture. I think we, we are kind of putting a ceiling on how much we're able to get outside of our own context and hire people who might bring diversity of perspectives and background and culture that often is such an important part of you know, staffing, resourcing a school district, especially if you're, you know, struggling to serve all of your students well. So having a process that's intentionally looking to do that means it's not on the leader to figure out how to, to deal with that all on their own. They have a process that, that can remind them, hey, you know, are all the candidates you're looking at people who really reflect the same thing that's already evident the skills and background in your district? Is it helping you build out the diversity of your staff? Is it helping you to better yeah. serve your students? Yeah. It's difficult if you only have a short amount of time to make these decisions, a process that's trying to really intentionally look at some of these, some, some of these issues and, and accomplish some goals when it comes to how you make investments or how you hire staff can support leaders, you know, to, to better um, uh, make decisions that, that forward those goals and also effectively resource uh, programs or, or hire staff or whatever the, the decision is. Alex, one of the other things we've heard district leaders talk about relates to their ability, their need to make what they call courageous decisions. In the face of the current reality, in the face of a lot of uncertainty, they have to make decisions as best they can. And in this time when the practical reality is there's not enough time. There's a lot of dollars, but they're under a lot of pressures, especially political pressure. So how does the system of thinking we're talking about tie into their current reality and making those courageous choices? What, what would you tell them? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I think making a courageous decision is, well, what it means to be making a courageous decision is very context specific. Right. And I think that it's uh, there's there's so much about how a culture is set up and how a district is organized and the leadership of a district or of a school that can contribute to, uh, you know, or a state for that matter. They can contribute to whether leaders are in a position to make a decision that might hold some risk or be perceived to be a risk. 
but that they feel based on their judgment is the best choice. So, you know, I, I think that would be how I would kind of try to, to clear up how differently courageous decisions can be kind of applied. If it's something that looks like it's a risk, or either perceived to be a risk or it truly does represent a risk, but the, the leader's making a judgment that that's the right choice for the moment, for the, the, the need that's, um, that's present, I think culture can contribute to that. But I also think not to go, you know, rely too much on this idea of process, but when you have a process that's set up that's outside of your context that explicitly asks leaders to make those kinds of courageous decisions, that explicitly sets up a framework that says, you know, here's how we would assess whether a decision is uh, risk and the level of risk and whether the level of risk is worth what the potential benefits are of the decision. Um, you know, benefit cost analysis, cost effectiveness analysis, ways of thinking about um, costs in dollars, but also in terms of uh, risks uh, or uh, potential negative benefits of, of some decision. That kind of uh, framework for a leader to have the opportunity to be invited to engage with, as opposed to a context where the framework is, you must always make a decision that is clearly going to be the one we think will work, which will probably be a decision that's very similar to ones that have been made in the past and holds no risk as far as we're concerned, or the perception is it holds no risk. And that's what's sort of encouraged, put forward as the ideal, may, may not give much opportunity for leaders to, to make courageous decisions, whatever that means in their context. So I, I would say that, you know, how you, how you set up a system really creates space for leaders to, to do that. I mean, I don't know if I would have any advice for leaders to get to your question. It took a long way around, but I don't know if I'm in a position to give advice to leaders on how to navigate a situation where a courageous decision isn't, there isn't space made for it. You know, I don't, I don't know. Um, but I guess I would say based on, you know, my, knowledge of the literature and this topic, creating systems, thinking about it as a systems problem, not as an individual problem, is probably a good place to start. So it's not on the principal alone or the, the district leader alone or the, the leader at whatever level of the system. It's not on them alone to figure out how to make courageous decisions. The system should be designed and there should be you know, intentionality around designing a system that creates space for that. So last question, Alex, probably some of our listeners don't have the, the privilege of being in a space where they're already instituting or putting some of the things you've described in place. So what advice would you give to a principal or a chief business officer or a superintendent about where they would start, about how they could apply some of this thinking, especially if they're listening and, and thinking, hey, this is really compelling. This is something I really want to take the first step towards. What would you say to them? Where, where would you point them? That's a great question. Uh, I, I think that, you know, I would say if you're in a position, you know, as, as a leader where you're not getting the support from your colleagues, from your uh, people who sit at a higher level of the system than you do, if the culture doesn't already kind of create space for that, you, you know, just like any role, you have to start with what you have control over. So, you know, for me, that, that would be a, a, a starting point is what do I have control over and how can I integrate some of, some of the tactics that I mentioned 
here, especially, I think, how can I integrate my own, how can I make um, uh, more transparent and systematic my own process of decision-making? So, you know, that you start with what you can control mm -hmm. and you can, you can control that, I think, as a leader um, for yourself. And then maybe, you know, mm. if you're finding success with your tactics, if, you're, if you've got a process and it's leading to good decisions, decisions that are resulting in um, success in one form or another, that's an opportunity to then share out, you know, what really has been working and why you see it as working um, in a systems, hmm. again, in a systems context. So rather than the lesson from your success being, hey, I just know what I'm doing. I just know how to make the right choice. The lesson could be, hey, I, I am really, you know, well-equipped to make these decisions. I'm the expert here, but I only am able to leverage that experience and expertise effectively if I have this process that set, that's set up to help the decision be made the best it can be. And I've set that up for myself and it's shown success. And I think our district, I think our organization, whatever level of the system you're in, I think we would benefit from developing something that is more standard across all of the leaders in our, in our context to go through a similar process. Because it's, again, it's, it's not just the individual's responsibility, in my view, to do that. I think it's something that is shared across the whole system and across all the people that have like a decision-making role in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love Alex. Just to it's in sum, there I, I heard one about locus of control, right? So assess what your locus of control is. Second is really around self agency, right? So consider like what you can do relative to that locus of control to uh, prove out that those kinds of that systematic decision making is effective in that environment, and then consider ways to you know we use terms like disseminate or scale, but it's it's even as simple what I hear from you as how do you socialize this? How do you talk to others about what your experience has been and how it's been successful in that context to kind of grow that culture uh, within a broader organization? Well, that's going to wrap up things for us here. As always, I want to thank you, our listeners, for making the decision to listen to this podcast. I hope you took a lot out of this episode. Many thanks to Alex Jacobson for WestEd for joining us. I have the pleasure to work with Alex all the time. And I think you hear the expertise and thoughtfulness that he brings to all of our work in education, equity, and the school finance arenas. Our series is written and produced by Paul Richmond and by me, Jason Willis. Tommy Dunbar handles all of our sound, editing, and original music. John Diaz works with us to develop our companion written materials. Be sure to check out those in our show notes. We're grateful to the Sobrato Family Foundation for their support of this series. Be sure to engage with us on Twitter at Budget for Ed Equity. And if you find the podcast valuable, please keep passing the word along to your friends and colleagues. Or give us a quick review wherever you access your podcasts. We'll see you out there.